0: I love this gospel for, for many, many reasons. Uh, one is just because it's, so, uh, it's so simple and yet profound. It, it's simple in that when my kids were little, little kids and they were going to Awanas, they could memorize verses in this gospel and, and feel the power of this gospel. And it's so profound that the greatest minds and theologians of all time haven't been able to plumb its depths. Uh, this gospel is also personal for me. I love this passage, but I love this gospel because when when God saw fit to set His affections on me, when I was in high school and my stepfather, who was raising me, uh, had uh, got addicted to cocaine and crack, and I saw his life getting destroyed by this, uh, God used that circumstance, that situation, and and people to come around our lives and invite us to a Bible study, and so uh, we went to a Bible study, and we never read the Bible really. I mean, I mean, we went to church a, a few times as a, as a you know, good Catholics on Christmas and Easter, and so uh, they, they welcomed us into their home, and they said, well, you're new to this, so we're going to start with the Gospel of John. And And we, I remember we went through chapter one that first night, and I think we only met once or twice, but as I was reading as an 18-year-old John's Gospel, something happened. Some, some transformation happened. Uh, I was able to uh, hear the, the Spirit of God speaking to me through this word. So it's deeply personal for, for me as we work through this. Uh, this is a gospel that offers so much to us. If, if we're willing to, to go beneath the surface, I, I think sometimes when we come to John's gospel, we'll, we read it and just at the kind of a surface level, but, but John is inviting us to go deeper, to go past the tip of the iceberg because usually when I read this and, and just kind of blow through it, I'm like, oh, Jesus, you know, decided to turn some wedding, water into wine at a wedding. What a nice thing for him to do. <laughs> and, and just kind of move on. Well, what's on with chapter 3? Oh, chapter 3, for God so loved the world, you know, and then you just keep moving on. But if we would pause and, and stop, and it's the reason why we're, we're doing this whole gospel over 36 weeks is to pause and stop and to be drawn into the depths and riches of God's Word is particularly through this, then you'll see that there, is some, there are some powerful things in here. Like all of us long for on some level uh, some transformation. Like you looked in the mirror this week and you thought, if I eat right, if I exercise, if I, if I do these things, then a future version of myself, then I'll be satisfied. Or we do it with our finances or our career, or we're always striving for transformation. And we do it with our city we need it, with our state we need it, with the nations. We're longing for transformation. It doesn't take long to look into the news and just see this world is desperately in need of transformation. This, is, this world is broken. Romans 8.22 says that like a woman giving birth, the, the whole creation is groaning to be transformed. And, and even those of us that know Christ are still longing for, for transformation. And this passage is all about the promise of transformation the power of transformation, the hope of transformation. And so as we dive deeper, we just say, let's have the Lord speak to us in this here. Now, when when a when, when a writer is a good writer and they write something that you don't expect then it should cause you to pause and ask some questions of the text. Like, why did he write it that way? Why did he use this word instead of that word? And, and by the way, this is the best author under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the first thing I want to draw you to is a word that John will use very strategically and uh, throughout his gospel. It's actually at the end of the passage there in verse 11 uh, after this whole scene. He says, this, the first of Jesus's signs... Or his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. It manifested His glory, and his disciples believed in it. The word is signs. Now now in Matthew, Mark and Luke, the other gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life, when Jesus does something miraculous, they call them miracles. But John never calls it a miracle. John says, these are signs. Now, if you've been here for the last four weeks, one verse we've gone to every week is is at the end of the gospel. The purpose statement of the whole gospel is this, John chapter uh, 20, verse 30. And notice what he says about signs. He says, now Jesus did many other signs. So this is the first sign in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says this is a sign. What, what we just read is a sign that, that is intended to stir your affection for Christ, to, to stir your trust in Christ. And, and, and when that happens and you believe, you receive. In fact, in this passage, this is the first time where it says the disciples believed. They received eternal life after witnessing. So what is going on? What's the deal with that? Well, what's the purpose of a sign? The purpose of a sign is not to stop at the sign, right? Like, the purpose of the sign is to point to somewhere else. So a few weeks ago, I said, uh, you know, when you look at the mountains, my wife would say, feast your eyes. Well, uh, if you are driving across Colorado, when you think about Colorado, you do think about skiing, the mountains, the rivers, our outdoor lifestyle, the beautiful city. You think about all those things, but you know what you don't think about? The other half of the state. Like, I don't go east of the Pace Center, because why don't we just call it Kansas for consistency? Because it's a... It's a, I'm sorry if you live out there, but it's a barren wasteland. And uh, when I was growing up, I have family in, in Kansas City. And a couple times a year, we would drive the 625 miles to Kansas City, spend the time there. Then we'd eventually drive back 400 miles across that great state. And, and then you'd come to the border of Kansas and Colorado. And as states do, there's often signs that kind of welcome you to their state. They give the state slogan. So if you're going to Missouri, it'll say, welcome to the show me state. I don't know what that means, but uh, if you go to Florida, it's the sunshine state, even though we have more days. Uh, if you go to New Jersey, it's the garden state. Uh, I, I asked my friend once, you know, in the military, there's a lot of guys from Texas. And so I asked them, uh, so what's Texas's slogan? And, and the guy from the crowd said, don't mess with Texas. And I'm like, I don't think that's the official motto. I mean, is that a threat? I don't, I don't know. I, I know you have that on all your bumper stickers, but I, I don't think that's quite right. But when you come across Kansas, and you go through the little town of Canterado, real town, and you get to the border. You see a sign, and it says, Welcome to Colorful Colorado. There you go. That's, a real, that's the real picture. That, that, that is not edited. That's not Photoshopped. I showed this to a friend, and they're like, well, there's two colors in that. And if you come to that sign, you're like... Is this a joke? Like, if you knew nothing nothing about Colorado and you're driving, and you come to the border of Kansas, Colorado, you stop at the sign, and and people do stop because it's almost it's so ironic. People are like, "Let's take our picture," and you're like, "What is going on? Well, what what's the purpose of the sign? The sign is like." Well, like in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book, uh, uh, where, where the, the children are called to go further in and further up. It's, it's pointing us to go further in and further up. Literally, as you go another 200 miles, and then the sun is starting to set up, you, you come across the ridge, and finally you, uh, if my wife was in the car with you, she would say, feast your eyes, children. You see the Rocky Mountains, and the sun setting, and the, the lights from five million residents, and you're like, I, I know what that sign was pointing to. And if you continue on." 70, and you go further in and further up, you're like, this was the purpose of the sign. So, so when you understand that, you start to understand, what, well, what's the purpose of this sign? It's not to stop at the sign. You know, if you go to Disney World in, in Orlando, it's a huge, massive, like 5,000 acres, and you get onto property finally, and the, the arches are over the highway, uh, but there are signs before the signs, and the signs before the signs say, don't stop at the sign. Because people, they've been saving their whole life to go to Disney World and they want to stop and take a picture at the sign. John is saying, don't stop at the sign. Follow the sign. The sign says something about the mission of Jesus. It says something about the gospel. It says something that offers you and me hope in our lives, in our families, in our city, and in the nations. And so let's, let's dig in. Let's look and see what does this sign say about that. Chapter Two verse one, it says, "On the third day." so again, this is just a, a couple days after the disciples have started to follow Jesus from last week. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, so this was a big deal. Anyone got any wedding plans this summer? I know Matthew's doing a wedding, right? You're doing your sister's wedding, right? So, uh, I'm sure it's going to be an awesome time. It's not going to be like a first century Jewish ancient Near Eastern wedding. I, I'm sorry, it's not, because it's probably not going to be a week long celebration. It, it's not, imagine that. This was a huge cultural deal. This was a full on community wide celebration, not only of this couple, but of, of the goodness of God in creation and creating man and woman in, in, in creation. And so they would celebrate. They knew how to celebrate. So, they, they would take, depending on the circumstance and the wealth of the people, uh, they would celebrate for a week. And it was the bridegroom's job to make sure all the provisions were in place. So the bridegroom had to uh, make sure the, the, enough wine was bought, which becomes important in the story. The bridegroom had to make sure the food, the music, all that. And imagine that. You go to the celebration. You, you uh, see the wedding. You celebrate. You, you eat. You drink. You dance. You go to your tent. Wake up the next morning and you crank it up again. And you do it the next day and the next day and the next day. Just this full-on celebration. That's where Jesus goes public. Uh, There's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot of sermons in that, but but this is just just feel the weight of of the cultural event that's going on here. Then verse 3, when the wine ran out. Now, if you're a first century Jewish reader of that text, and you come to this, and and, and you're reading it out loud, and it says, when the wine ran out, you're like, shut up. Are you serious? The wine ran out? What do you mean the wine ran out? No, 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 no. Who failed? The bridegroom failed. The wine ran out. Did you know you could be liable for a lawsuit from the community if the wine ran out? That's how big, it's, they're like hobbits. Like, if you offend the whole community, they're, they're going to be upset. And the wine has run out. The bridegroom has failed in his responsibility. And apparently there's some, there's some connection with Jesus' family and his mother. Maybe, maybe this is distant relatives or something like that. It says the mother of Jesus, it's Mary, said to him, they have no wine. Uh, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, now, what is she doing? She's, she's turning to her oldest son. At this point, Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, has probably passed away. And Jesus is used to stepping in and being the provider of the family. And like, like he's done so many times, or like she's done so many times, she turns to her oldest son and is like, hey, there's a problem. But, but now he's gone public. He's going public. And uh, he says, woman, he doesn't say, he, I mean, there, there's, there's Greek words for, and Aramaic words for mother. He doesn't say that. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? So again, we ask the question, why the stiff arm? <laughs> why doesn't Jesus just say, I'll take care of it, mom? Because that's what he does. What's he doing here? I, I think he's redefining the relationship. He, he's from the very beginning saying, Look, if, if I'm going to do anything in this moment, it's not because of my mother son obligation. It's, it'll be because my father has told me to do it. And so he's redefining the relationship. Elsewhere in the gospel, uh, some people come up to Jesus and say, uh, Blessed is the, the woman who bore you. And he said, It's more blessed to be my follower than to be my relative. And so he's redefining the relationship there. But uh, it goes on and says, my hour has not yet come. Now, that's a strange way to put it. What do you mean? My hour has not yet come. And again, that should cause us to pause. What does he mean by that? Because we'll see that several times in the gospel. We'll see this hour thing coming up. And every time, we know that Jesus had at least three years of public ministry because John's gospel. In John's gospel, three times he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the first two times when he's there in chapter, uh, let me see here, chapter, what was it? Chapter six, no, chapter seven and and eight, uh, they go to arrest him because they seek to kill him, but it says his hour had not yet come. The next year he goes. They go to arrest him to kill him, and it says his hour had not come. And he goes the third year, and in John chapter 12, Jesus shifts gears, and he says, my hour has come. My hour has come. Well, what's the hour? Well, in John chapter 17, on the night that he would be betrayed, he, he, he says this. I think I have it on the screen here. He says, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. When John talks about our, he's pointing to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. See, Jesus, and John wants us to be very, very clear from the very beginning that Jesus did not come as a good moral teacher, though he was. Jesus did not come as a good moral example, though he was. Jesus didn't come as a a great philosopher, though he was all those things. He came ultimately for that hour. And And John wants us to see that this first sign is pointing to that hour. How in the world does this point to his cross work or the hour? Well, let's continue and see. His mother said to him, to the servants, do whatever... He tells you. Now, two, two things on that. First of all, that's the best advice anyone's given anybody ever. Okay? So, so if you hear nothing from my sermon today and, and you're facing a decision or, or you're looking at something and there's a, a circumstance in your life or relationship or work or to move or, or whatever the case may be, if you hear the Spirit of God saying, do whatever He tells you, that's the best advice ever. And secondly, notice this shift. She she moves from a a mother obligating a son to trusting in Jesus. She she doesn't know what he's going to do. Like He's given no indication that that he even has the power to do this. He's he's done no miracles for 30 years. uh, But she says, I I don't know what he's going to do. But hey, you guys, I trust him. Do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus says, often is the case in the gospel, someone will, will come to Jesus and, and they'll have a request, and Jesus will kind of test them or, or kind of rebuff them a little bit, and they'll follow it up with trust in him, and then Jesus comes through, and this is what we see happening here. Verse 6, now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, that is not a throwaway verse, and there are no throwaway words in that sentence. So what's up with that? There's these six stone water jars, and and John's very clear to show us and to tell us why they're there. They're there for the Jewish rites of purification. So for year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and millennia after millennia, God's people were, were to relate to God through the law, and the law had all these rules and regulations that, that this is how you are to relate to God, and when you, when you uh, transgress the law, when you, when you fail to keep up the law, and when you become unclean, then, then there's a law for how to purify yourself, and so uh, you would go through this ceremonial washing of washing of hands and washing of vessels, and and they would have to do this every day, every day. So now imagine this, in the midst of this massive celebration, in the midst of this total exhilarating joy, standing silently in the corner are six jars, and they are a silent testimony that you have fallen short. You You are unclean. You have not fulfilled your obligation to God. You are not pure. You need a deeper cleansing. Well, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, John said this, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. That's overflowing grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to our jars that represent the law. It represents all of our uncleanness. It represents our need for a deeper cleansing. While while it's good to wash your hands and, and wash your vessels, it was shouting to the people, you failed and you deserve the wrath of God. In the midst of this celebration. And Jesus says, take those jars and do what with them? See, Jesus could have had wine show up in everybody's goblet and just done it like that. He he could have done it in any number of ways. And we have to ask, when Jesus does a sign, why does he do it this way and not that way? Why doesn't he just have them go down to the river and pull out some wine? He says, no, take those jars and, and do what with them? He says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. They are full filled. Jesus is saying, the time of the old way has reached its fulfillment. The time of relating to God through the law is coming to its fulfillment. There is a new thing that's going to be going on here. And they filled them up to the brim so that if you bumped them, they would splash out. And, and it's six jars. Between 120 and 180 gallons, that's at least 1,000 bottles of wine. Why does Jesus do so much? Why is it uh, an abundance of wine in this moment? Well, we'll get to that. He says, fill those jars to the brim. Now draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who knew had drawn the water of course they did. They told this story every day for the rest of their life. Like, dude, you remember that time we were at that wedding and that dude turned the water into wine? Remember how good it was? It's amazing. <laughs> and they tell this story for the rest of their life, no doubt. But, but, but so they take this to the, the master of the ceremonies. Now, this guy has a refined palate. He knows good wine from bad wine. And so they're like, uh, here's the new batch. And, and so he tastes it, and to his surprise... It's the best wine he's ever tasted in his life. It says, uh, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, who's the bridegroom? We're not told. He's not named. On on the one hand, on the surface level, you could say, well, John is protecting the identity of this, this doofus, this guy who's failed the community. But if we go a little bit deeper, I think the reason the bridegroom isn't named is because you and I are the bridegroom. You and I have failed to live up to our responsibility. You and I have failed the community. You and I have failed in our responsibility before God. And he calls the bridegroom over and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, the poor wine." He gets the implication, right? Like you, you, you give them the good wine. When, when they're getting a little bit into the party and they don't notice any better, then you can start to throw the boxed wine to them or whatever the case may be in the first century. Uh, but but he's, he's flabbergasted because it's been reversed in a major way. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now that's twice John has, has called it the good wine. Or your translation might call it the sweet wine wine. What, what was going on with wine? What's, what's the deal with all the wine? What's the deal with the, the massive amounts of wine that are taking place here? Well, the time of the old system has gone away and the time of the new system is being fulfilled. There's two symbols throughout the scriptures that are deeply symbolic when it comes to wine. The first one is Uh, promised throughout in the prophets and in the Old Testament that, that a day is coming when the Messiah comes to bring transformation, to bring restoration. When he comes, it'll be like God pouring out his blessing of mercy and grace to him like wine. So Joel talks about this. Amos talks about this. I think I have that on the screen as well. In Amos chapter 9, verse 13, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, And this whole context is when the Messiah comes, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all, excuse me, and all the hills shall flow with it. It's this picture of God pouring out abundant grace, or as chapter one said, grace upon grace is coming through Jesus. It's this picture of rejoicing. It's this picture of celebration. It's this picture of God's mercy flowing. And so now we know why there's so much of it. Because there's so much of it to go around. <clears throat> there's not a little bit of God's grace. There's a thousand bottles of God's grace to be poured out on the people. Well, <clears throat> that's the first sign. And that's the first miracle. That's the first Jesus goes public. And, and in his first bits, first moments of public ministry, there's these jars that are now full of wine at the very beginning of his ministry. But that's not the only time there's a jar full of wine in John's gospel. At, at the very, very end of his ministry, now, turn with me over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, there's a, another jar of wine John 19, now you've fast-forwarded in the story three years. Jesus has been betrayed with a kiss. He's been arrested. He's gone to a mockery of a trial. He's had the beard torn from his face. He's been uh, lashed. He's been mocked. He's been uh, put a crown of thorns on his head. He's gone before Pilate. He's gone before Herod. He's been condemned to death. He's been crucified with thick seven-inch iron spikes through his wrists and his ankles. And for three hours now, in the hot Palestinian sun, he's been baking in the sun, beating down to him, and he's hanging on the cross. And in John chapter 19, in verse 28, we read this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus is thirsty. A jar, so we've got another jar, a jar full, another jar full to the brim, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of, for a second time, John points out, the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Sour wine. One one symbol is God's overflowing grace and mercy, but the other symbol Throughout the Old Testament and into the book of Revelation of wine is God pouring out his justified wrath against sinful humanity. Psalm 75 verse 8 puts it this way, for the, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it and down to the dregs. It's this picture of God executing his right and good justice against sinful humanity. So now we begin to see what the sign is for. Jesus came to give you and me the sweet wine of his mercy and grace. He, he transformed it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, "If anyone says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. He, he's transformed stuff. And what Jesus creates and what Jesus transforms, he creates good. But how is that possible? Because 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a few verse, verses later says, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what's going on. Here's the symbol. Jesus drank the, wine, the bitter wine of God's wrath in our place on the cross so that you and I could drink the sweet wine of the mercy and grace. That was our wine on the cross. That that is what should have been poured out on us. But Jesus took that wine. Jesus drank the bitter wine so that we might have grace upon grace. This has the power to transform. This is the gospel. And now you see that it's more than just a a, a magic party trick at a wedding. It, It is about the gospel. Grace upon grace has come. But because Jesus is full of grace and truth, God is just and he exercises his justice on the cross to his son. So think about the implications of that for yourself. If you really believe this at your core, that you deserve the bitter wine, but God has given you the sweet wine. How how might that impact you? Think about it being full to the brim so that as you go out into your neighborhood and you go out into your family and and you get bumped, what if you were so filled with the sweet wine of mercy and grace that splashed out mercy and grace? That would have a transforming power in our relationships. It would have a transforming power in our neighborhoods. Imagine if Redemption Parker was known as the church church that carried the wine of God's mercy and grace no matter where they went. So that every little step, a little bit of grace and mercy goes splashing out of us to the side. That's our hope and that's our prayer. So let me pray for us now and we'll come to the communion table and partake of the wine and the bread. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Jesus, I thank you that you drank the bitter cup so that we might drink of your sweet mercy and grace forever and ever and ever. Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to this truth this week, that, that we would be reminded that we, of what we deserved and what we got and, and of your overflowing, abundant love that is poured out on, onto us. Lord, may we be jar carriers into our lives and into our neighborhood this week. Uh, May we be reminded that you've filled us up to the brim with your mercy and grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.